This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Derek Dorch of the Diversa Group, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Now your host, Derek T. Dorch. Welcome to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch from the Federal News Network. We're so happy to have you join us. We're going to be talking about what everybody's talking about uh, these days. We're going to be talking about the terrorist attacks at the Capitol that happened on January 6th. I've got with me Camille Cosgrove. She's an intel analyst at the Counterterrorism Group, and she focuses in on extremism. She's part of the extremism team there, and all they do is been focusing in on extremist groups, uh, domestic terrorist groups, and everything else. And she's been joining us. She's going to join us to talk about these issues today. Camille, thank you for joining us on Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. It's a pleasure to be here. And we, we're glad to have you. Hey, you know what, Camille? You guys, you know, at the counterterrorism group, you guys have been really focused. I've been reading some of your reports on LinkedIn, and, and you guys have been really focusing in on a lot of your alerts have been talking about this situation right now. Talk to me about the current situation from the camera. I think we all were kind of not necessarily surprised, but we were all kind of uh, uh, taken aback about what happened at the Capitol. And as we're getting more and more details, it seems as if this was not just kind of like some kind of mob that kind of rushed into the building. This was kind of an operation almost. Give us some updates about what we're learning right now about the Capitol uh, terrorist attacks on January 6th. Of course, Derek. Well, we definitely saw this coming before it occurred. We were not aware at the extreme severity and the violence which is going to occur because that was quite a shock to a lot of people who aren't in the intelligence community. However, it's been coming out recently for anybody reading any kind of news source that intelligence agencies were aware about what was happening. This was not an intelligence failure. The information was there. The chatter has been occurring across social media. Um, And so the failure itself was what the shock was. The violence that was portrayed on that event and the breach into this space was what has really astounded not just the United States, but the entire world. We are constantly getting updates with pieces of information that were not openly released. Most recently, we learned that um, Vice President Mike Pence was incredibly close to the protesters as they were breaching into the Capitol building. He was 100 feet away from them, which is an incredible security failure um, on the part of everybody, including the Secret Service. And it's raised a lot of questions as to what exactly has gone wrong in this incident, considering the fact that the information was so clearly present to a vast amount of people who are charged with handling these kind of incidents. You know, and you kind of talk about the dynamics, right? You kind of even just mentioned, I think this doesn't really kind of get caught in the narrative. This really kind of exposes, uh, uh, Camille, some of the vulnerabilities of the security dynamic, right? Especially not just for us in the domestic terrorism realm, but also just internationally, you know, because we've always been like, oh, we know we're strong and we're this, that, and the other. And now this may give people some other um, uh, uh, thoughts about, our security level kind of going forward, whether it be embassies or whether it be Capitol buildings or whatever the case is. What's your thoughts on that? I completely agree. Um, Part of what we do with the extremist team as well is we look into foreign extremist groups like the Islamic State as an example. And we have been seeing a massive increase of rhetoric about how this was such a big failure on the part of the United States. They are trying to exploit this possibly in the future because this has really given them an insight into how simple potentially it is to get into some of these spaces Mm -hmm. that appear to be quite secure. However, this displayed how 
insecure they actually were and groups like the Islamic State as just one example, as there are so many groups talking about this, talking about how they could possibly exploit this in the future, possibly use this confusion, as well as a new administration, which is going to have a massive overhaul in a lot of agencies and departments, how they could possibly exploit this to their advantage and further their goals or carry out some kind of attack here, as well as questioning, of course, the security around the world, because we, of course, always are the United States. You know, we, we people assume that every location that we have is top-notch security, which for many locations is true, but this has really displayed a massive loophole and it's brought a lot of questions to the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Without question, without question. You know, when we're looking at this threat right now, we're learning about certain things. It's, it's not just a dynamic that these guys stormed in, but it's also a dynamic that there were also people who were using, you know, possibly setting up IEDs, um, you know, doing a number of different things. So is this more of an organized situation or is this just a whole bunch of people who have kind of, you know, who were on the same kind of mindset and they all were thinking, okay, I'm going to do something kind of uh, uh, extreme on this day and I'm going to bring up some napalm or some pipe bombs, whatever the case is. What are you seeing? Is this part of an actual militia or is this an actual, you know, um, you know, we talk about these different organizations, the Boogaloo Boys and the Proud Boys. What are you guys going to see in you guys' intelligence right now? That's a really good question, Derek. And honestly, it's kind of a little bit of both. We're seeing organized groups attempting to pull together because their common cause is that they are not interested in the new administration. Um, but we are also seeing a lot of lone individuals, either lone wolves or small cells that are not attributed to anybody and are actually, in some cases, groups of friends or individuals who just happen to live in the same town. And they are all really rallying behind the same idea. In a lot of these chats, especially in the last two or three days, there's been an increased rhetoric that individuals are not supporting President Trump specifically but they are just behind the same idea that they don't agree with the government. And then 50% of them may be saying that they do agree with the president. So there is a, a clear split in the ideology behind what they are trying to achieve or what they are believing in. However, all of them appear to want some kind of violence. They are not agreeing with the way that the system is being run. They are not agreeing with the decisions being made, which I think is the kind of cohesive glue that is holding everyone together. But Within this, there are militia groups who are much more coordinated, and they are kind of sending out propaganda, um, displaying different guides on how to make these weapons, things like that. So that's kind of giving the direction to the people who might want to take matters into their own hands. Maybe they don't want to have the responsibility and the pressure of joining a group, but they still want to be part of the change that they think the country needs. You know, this is not a new situation. I remember the days, and, and I'm sure you guys have been monitoring this for a long time, but I remember when DHS, uh, and you, I, I'm sure you remember, when DHS put out that report about domestic terrorism being probably one of the most greatest threats uh, to U.S. national security. A lot of people kind of pushed back. Some of the, you know, some of the politicians kind of pushed back on that dynamic about the dom domestic terrorism threat. And people did not take it serious that this threat was really out here the way it was. But what's your thoughts on that? Why were maybe either politicians or law enforcement or whoever who's in charge of security, why weren't they taking this threat as serious as they've taken uh, the threats from foreign terrorist organizations? I mean, yes, we have a 9-11, but we have had a lot of uh, situations where domestic terrorists have also caused 
a lot of harm and havoc? That's a really interesting question. And I think it really boils down to the look of the person. No one wants to think that someone who looks exactly like you is going to ever perpetrate something like that. You don't want to think that a fellow American is ever going to try and blow up other fellow Americans or possibly go against your elected officials. This is why we are a democratic country. We are having, we all have the voice to vote people in and no one wants to think that someone is to, going to go to such extremes. People perceive these kind of extreme and violent actions being carried out in authoritarian regimes, you know, by Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, things like that. And with groups that are foreign, they are distanced from ourselves. We can easily, you know, demonize them. But when it becomes to your next door neighbor, or even we've seen a lot with family members, you know, people are turning in their mothers and their fathers. No one wants to see that threat. And this, of course, comes into intelligence and into the federal agencies as well. Thinking that possibly that a terrorist could be your next door neighbor, while it's not a far stretch, you may not want to necessarily come to that conclusion. And, you know, the biggest rallying point, which is always referenced is 9-11. That was not perpetrated by, um, you know, United States citizens. It was by foreigners. Mm -hmm. And Timothy McVeigh, that is a really great example of a domestic threat. But when you talk to people and you ask them, what is the biggest terrorist incident that has occurred that shook the country the most? Most people will say 9-11. And it actually quite shocks me, people who are not in this field, speaking to them, and they don't actually really know much about Timothy McVeigh. It's not taught in the classroom the same as foreign threats. And so I think this lack of understanding and awareness that it can happen to you or I, anybody is susceptible to this. Um, I think that kind of blinder vision is ultimately resulting in possibly a limited or diminished view of domestic situations that could be occurring right under our noses. Right. How serious do you think the threat is right now? I mean, in terms of, I mean, of course, we're seeing a number of different things right now. You know, we're seeing uh, uh, situations where many political officials are getting uh, threats, you know, at their doors, at their homes, um, at their offices and everything else. What's your guys' assessment in terms of the level of the threat right now? I mean, is is this something that we got to take very, very serious uh, where we got to really be paying attention about what's going on because people are plotting and planning? Or was this kind of a one-off situation? This is definitely something that is a high-risk situation and something that everyone needs to be on alert for. Um, and this is pretty much a consensus within our team and with a lot of other people that we speak to. Um, we are seeing threats all the time. Whether or not they are keyboard warriors is besides the point because one person can say it and another person can be radicalized or inspired. And we are seeing this Capitol Hill situation where statements were made and it was still a shock. And then this mob mentality grew the threat and situation beyond what was even planned and what was considered to be possibly gonna happen. Um, and this threat is high. We are seeing constant calls for killing of elected officials. We are seeing calls for killing of the perceived Antifa and murdering them. Um, possibly abducting them. And this is a concern. I mean, we don't want to be completely pessimistic because we are seeing some fantastic support by general citizens turning in family members, supporting Twitter feeds and helping identify people. So I think this has really brought it to the forefront of not just the intelligence community and law enforcement, but for general citizens as well. People are really working together. But that being said, we are seeing social media, you know, shutting down people's um, platforms to spread this information. So it becomes increasingly challenging for people who are actively trying to combat this in intelligence and law enforcement to really know exactly what they're thinking. We have seen groups go underground, which is an increasingly concerning threat with the rhetoric they're using. They are very interested in this violence, whatever that may be. And if they choose to avoid social media because they are 
being censored, that's going to be very challenging for us to counter and is something that we need to be on high alert for, watching for sus suspicious movement, possibly pre-event surveillance, things like that. Um, and in the coming days and weeks, and especially into the new administration, this is going to be a concern that everyone should be very much aware of. We're talking to Camille Cosgrove. She is an uh, intel analyst at the Counterterrorism Group, and she works on the extremist team. They've been monitoring what's going on with the domestic terrorism threats that are to the United States, but also even the foreign threats as well. Uh, she's given us some insight about what happened with this domestic threat situation, this domestic attack, the terrorist attack at the Capitol on January 6th, and also what can we anticipate in the future going forward in terms of domestic terrorism. Listen to Derek T. Dorch on Fed Access on the Federal News Network. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. If you're just joining us, we've been talking about the domestic terrorism threat that's going on right now. All of us are kind of paying attention to what happened on January 6th, but we're also concerned about what's going to happen at inauguration and also anytime going forward. We've got Camille Cosgrove. She's an intel analyst with the counterterrorism group. She's given us some insight about what's going on with this threat right now. I know that there were things going on Twitter about a blackout and about, you know, hey, the, you know, with these kind of disinformation operations, they're talking about a blackout and, you know, that the president's going to, you know, go to the power and, and the power grid is going to shut down and this, that and the other. What are we seeing in terms of these uh, uh, possible uh, threat actors? wanting to attack critical infrastructure. We've definitely been seeing increased rhetoric to do with this. Um, there was recently a post circulated, which appears to stem from a post by a QAnon group in 2019 with this kind of playlist as to what would happen if the president's Twitter account was removed. And so immediately following the shutting down of Donald Trump's Twitter account, this immediately re-sparked. Um, and so part of this playbook they have is level two is shutting down central communication blackouts across the continental United States. Now, as of this moment, we have not seen any clear organization to carry this out. However, they are talking about this. There is an interest in a blackout. Um, there is no clear direction as to if they all want to do communication, if they want to do general infrastructure, if this is going to be a cyber blackout, but it's got our attention. Um, we have seen in the Nashville Christmas Day bombing, um, we saw that the critical infrastructure for communication really did not stand that explosion. It took hours and hours for 911 to get back up again, and it really displayed the vulnerabilities in the system. So if this kind of incident were to happen around or on the inauguration, that could be quite a big disaster for the event, as well as the safety of the people in the area. Um, and we have been seeing also under certain posts in private communications from individuals claiming to be from Russia, having an interest in, you know, supporting the cause that we are fighting for. And we saw recently, you know, Russia was able to access U.S. government agencies and companies via the source code that was with Microsoft. Um, and this was a very wide reaching hack. So the vulnerability posed by a foreign actor possibly supporting you know, destabilizing the United States is a serious concern. Um, so as I said, as of this moment, we have not seen any clear organization. But as we saw with the Nashville uh, you know, bombing as well, there was no, you know, alert beforehand, it just suddenly occurred. So it would be remiss of us to not consider this as being a very very concerning threat. It could result in a considerable amount of damage and a lack of communication between law enforcement to coordinate appropriately. So this is not a new 
kind of a plot dynamic, is it? I mean, this has kind of been around for quite some time, would you say? Yes. No, this has been kind of constant rhetoric they've been using for a while. There was an interest possibly in shutting down the nuclear power. We've seen comments from people possibly trying to shut down the U.S. power grid wherever they could. And because of the vulnerability at these targets, you know, they don't have as high level of security as some people think. It's a legitimate concern. And we've seen this rhetoric constantly being displayed. But with the most recent attacks, we've seen the actual vulnerability. People are aware of what can actually happen. And not only people who are trying to combat these threats are aware, but people who may want to exploit this are now able to see that this is something that is attainable to them and can cause widespread panic and ultimate damage. You know, you mentioned the Nashville attack, and I'm glad you did mention it, because that was another situation, again, where, you know, and, and, and most people thought it was kind of a surprise situation, but we found out later on that, you know, somebody called into law enforcement, and said, hey, listen, this guy's making a bomb in, in, in his RV. <laughs> and, and, it, and, it wasn't, and it was not taken serious. How do we get past that, Camille? I mean, how do we get past this dynamic? Because people are saying, hey, listen, uh, uh, and, and, and people are giving the intel. Like you just mentioned, the intel failures are not there. I think on 9-11, you know, again, I mean, even, even with 9-11, I mean, people were, were, were warning people, hey, this is about to happen. But I, I guess I just kind of keep on kind of coming back to the dynamic that there's these warnings that but people are not taking them serious do we need to have a kind of a whole new kind of either retraining of law enforcement or a a new way to investigate certain things because this becomes very very discouraging when people you know they tell people hey report suspicious activity and then when they report it it doesn't go anywhere what do we do about that it's very challenging to deal with i mean we've seen with social media the amount of data points out there of quote unquote credible threats is alarming people think that there are threats they report people all the time and so sifting through this amount of data can be very challenging and when you have individuals like in the nashville bombing you know the girlfriend came forward and said that he was building explosives in his rv they didn't see this as credible because this comes back to the point of you know not in my neighborhood you mm-hmm. know i'm never this is never going to occur in this kind of area and ultimately it was never escalated appropriately. And we've seen this kind of constant pattern, you know, we saw in 9-11 with the intelligence, it was there, but there was a lack of communication. And I think, you know, following 9-11, there was a massive overhaul and it has gotten better. But especially in the recent years with the divide politically, um, people are constantly not wanting to work together, whether this be personal reasons or possibly agency divisions with agencies possibly being politicized, things like that. Things aren't getting to where they need to go. So the intelligence and information is there, people are having it. But until there is an increased amount of cooperation, because this is a threat that we are all facing, it doesn't matter what your political um, goals are, your political viewpoints are, or what your race is, we are all facing the same threat. An explosion is gonna kill you no matter what color your skin is or what your background is. And people are forgetting that. They think that this is constantly about politics. And I think this is that's kind of the root of the problem, especially right now, we are seeing these divisions with law enforcement and with government and people not wanting to work together. And I think until we have this conversation about, you know, this is the threat, we are all facing it. We need to share this information, which kind of brings in that other point of people, you know, don't want to step on each other's toes. They want their jurisdiction, things like that. I think until this is really given a good hard look and people understand that if we don't address this, we could have a major catastrophic incident similar to 9-11 or again with, you know, Timothy McVeigh like that, but possibly on a larger scale, because now we are seeing so many people pulling together for the same cause that this is highly concerning. And if something isn't done, it could be very disastrous. 
you know, with the situation right now, I mean, a number of politicians right now, and, and we've been kind of monitoring, kind of looking at what the politicians are saying, listen, you know, I, I've got some money to buy bulletproof vests. And, and, and many politicians, not just in the U.S. Capitol, but just around the, uh, the, the United States are now buying bulletproof vests. They're buying maybe concealed carry guns and everything else. Um, you know, they're worried about, you know, security at their homes and their families. Um, what are we seeing in terms of threats towards politicians or maybe government leaders? Is, is that increasing right now? or I mean I know it's always kind of been there but what are we kind of seeing in terms of the threat matrix we are definitely seeing an increase in rhetoric against or for going against any kind of politician at any level. You know, we've been seeing that D.C. is trying to shut down for the inauguration because there are so many credible threats against that specific point. But we have been seeing there are calls for protests across the United States at Capitol buildings or for possibly going after politicians. We have been seeing a call for killing of politicians and not people who are just in the Senate, but local representatives going after their um, their children, after their spouses or their families. And this is very concerning because while someone in Washington, D.C. may have some kind of security detail, people who live in smaller towns who are making decisions that are just as important are possibly more at risk. Um, and we are seeing this is this is increasingly um, becoming more concerning because as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, there's been calls for the decapitation of leaders. People are arming themselves increasingly. They are stockpiling ammunition. There's an increase in a lack of ammunition available. So now people are trying to stockpile as much as they can. Um, and this is really concerning to see because politicians are scared. They don't want to leave their house. They don't want to necessarily go and do their jobs, which is represent the people, because the people are actually now trying to turn against them. And of course, this isn't everyone. You know, it's a certain group of individuals who are part of this kind of movement that want to go against their leaders. However, these are credible threats. They aren't internet warriors who are just saying they hate their leader. They are actively calling for the killing of these individuals to teach others who will be future leaders a lesson as to what the American people will do if you do not listen to what the voice of the people is saying. And I think this is something that politicians need to be aware of, especially in the coming you know, week, week and a half, as well as into the new administration as well. You know, I'm from Michigan, Camille, and, and you know, Michigan's been in the news a lot these days, as you know, um, for a number of different reasons, right? But, you know, it's been very, very concerning because people have said, you know, and, and look and just kind of reading about this Michigan plot, um, people have kind of said that this kind of plot was really kind of the uh, almost the foundation for what happened at, uh, on January 6th. And as we kind of read a little bit deeper into the plot, uh, these guys were were doing training. These guys were kind of doing operational plans and everything else. And, and were very, very serious. They were doing surveillance and everything else kind of going forward. They were very, very serious about what's going on. So what you're saying also, too, is that for places that are local towns or state capitals, the scenario in terms of who don't have the same kind of resources as the federal government, that threat level is very, very real, very, very high. And they probably need to be very, very aware that they may be targets for a threat actor. Is that true? Yes. No, that's exactly true. Because, I mean, the point that we have here is we have people saying that a great example was a Texas GOP member called for Senator Mitt Romney to be, quote, introduced to our friend, Mr. Guillotine. They were also calling for the decapitation of Mike Pence. And I mean, when you look at the videos coming out as the Islamic State, for example, when they decapitate 
regular citizens, people around the world are shocked and disgusted and people try and, you know, change. If you have a politician or an elected official, no matter what level that they are at, if it's local, like a governor, or if it's someone from Congress, if they are actually killed on TV or they are live streamed this kind of execution, that is going to shock not just the United States, but the world. This is really kind of a perception concern for the stance for the United States. Um, you know, we saw with Michigan, they wanted to abduct the governor, they wanted to have a trial on TV, and then they wanted to execute her. And this is concerning. I mean, this was a legitimate threat. This wasn't a conversation. They attempted it. The FBI has agreed this is a legitimate thing that they were going to do. And the fact that they were training for this and they were going to go through with it, which is execute a politician on television is highly concerning, not just for the intelligence and for their safety, but for the image that, you know, you have the United States, what we are portraying to international governments that kind of validates it, things like that. And for these leaders, this is a credible threat. They don't have the security detail. And if they are not, you know, I'm not saying they have to have a high security detail, but they need to be aware of possibly people taking photos of their houses that they don't know, because we are seeing in a lot of chats, people driving around taking photos of security at various locations. And people take photos. People don't think twice of that, especially in political locations, because it's kind of, you know, quote unquote, the people's house, things like that. You elected the official, but especially in this time, Anything that is suspicious or individuals who are doing some kind of surveillance or reconnaissance needs to be paid more close attention to than maybe you usually would. Without question. We're talking to Camille Cosgrove. She's an intelligence analyst at the Counterterrorism Group. You can find them at the at counterterrorismgroup.com. You can find their site, but they also have some good reports, not only on their site, but also on their LinkedIn page as well. I've been diving deep into them, and they've been quite insightful about what's going on in the world of terrorism, not only domestic, but also abroad. Um, we're going to keep on this conversation right now. Listen to Fed Access with Derek T. George. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch from the Federal News Network. If you're just joining us, we've been having an insightful conversation about what's going on with domestic terrorism. We've all known about January 6th. That's going to be one of the new dates that now is going to be in the books of terrorism. We have 9-11 that everybody remembers. We all remember about Oklahoma. Well, some people do, some people don't. But Oklahoma at one point in time was the biggest domestic terrorism threat. But now the January 6th attacks will be one of those dates that will go into the halls of history. We've been talking about this right now with the counterterrorism group. We've been talking to one of their intel analysts, Camille Cosgrove. She's an intel analyst with the counterterrorism group on their extremism team. And she's giving us a breakdown on what they're seeing, what intelligence they're gathering kind of going forward about this domestic threat that is to the United States going forward. And we're looking at what's not only to the capital situation, but also just beyond these days, beyond inauguration, beyond what's going to be going forward for the rest of the year and well, well beyond with this domestic threat. You know, Camille, you kind of mentioned a couple of things and, and, and you dive into a little bit earlier. You kind of mentioned about kind of Russia, right? And, and, and the reason why I kind of touch on this is because we've had a number of situations where We've been having this discussion about misinformation and disinformation, right? Where politicians are telling lies. I mean, we're not going to even kind of go around it and kind of just say, well, you know, they're just you know, kind of skirting around the truth. They have been lying to the people, right? They've been lying to people about what's going on. What is the harm of this kind of going on, right? What's, what, what's the damage of these lies? And then two, how much are we seeing the exploitation from Russia or foreign adversaries in terms of taking these lies and really kind of fostering them among people in social media and everywhere else. 
Well, the damage is extreme. Anything on social media has the ability to become viral. As we've seen with Twitter, you know, if you use the right hashtag and you get the right attention, anything becomes viral. And ultimately, because of this, it becomes a form of a fact in people's minds. And because of this, especially coming from politicians who in and of themselves, they have authority behind them. They are elected officials. Many of them have um, legitimate credentials, you know, to support their knowledge and their experience. And so Russia now doesn't even need to go and make these lies up. They can actually build off of what individuals are saying, like elected individuals are saying. So this is credible in people's minds. You know, we always, we've all been susceptible to this. You know, you see someone who's got a credential and you assume everything that comes out of their mouth is going to be the truth because you trust them. And that's the problem. We are trusting these politicians to feed us facts but they are not. And therefore, all that Russia has to technically now do, and they are just one of many out there who are trying to exploit this information, is build off of this information being displayed. Um, and this is very detrimental because, you know, as I just mentioned, anything can become fact. So if a politician tweets something, another, a random individual, someone who has no experience in this field can tweet something else underneath that. And it can gain traction and more and more people can start to believe it. You know, a really great example of this was a verified user on Twitter. They weren't a politician. However, they were verified, which in people's mind on social media, that means that they are someone, they've made it, they have some kind of credibility on the social media site. They tweeted that they actually believe that on inauguration day, Space Force is going to shut down all of the satellites over the airspace. This has not come from anything. There is no credibility. Um, and people have run with it because it has come from a verified source. They believe that Space Force is in, and on, uh, in on this. They are going to shut down the satellites and that the government is going to come in and attempt to massacre everyone. Um, and this has taken off. And this is the problem um, when you are seeing both elected officials using these platforms, as well as verified individuals who are possibly connected politically or just using the platform to voice an opinion, stating misinformation as well as clear lies. And it takes off and it just becomes fact that get disseminated into private chats for these extremist groups without any context whatsoever. And then it just turns into a wildfire after that and people start making conspiracy theories. They start finding pieces, um, little pieces of the puzzle that happen to fit together very, very slightly. And that's all they need for them to believe in the threat and ultimately try and act on it. You know, that kind of leads me to kind of QAnon, right? You know, this whole thing about the Q and, and everything else, right? You know, I mean, and this thing is kind of taken off. I mean, at one point, I, th I thought it was just kind of a fluke. But this thing has kind of taken off and really has taken hold of a lot of different people. Um, how are people, Camille, how are people being radicalized, you know, to really believe in this kind of whole QAnon dynamic? And then let me even kind of toss it out even more. Um, with, with our leaders, right, because we have some QAnon people in Congress now, right, mm -hmm. with our leaders knowing about this extreme nature of this threat, why do they, why, I mean, what's your, and I know you can't get into the minds of these leaders, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I know, and I know that they're doing it for political reasons, but I guess my concern of it is that when people have told them, like, listen, this is a concern, this is a threat, people are going down the wrong page, and this is what's happening, 
I'm just wondering why are they not taking the security situation serious enough to change what they are doing and to stop lying? I mean, what what what's kind of the motivations there? Again, how, how do these people get radicalized in this kind of stuff right here? I think one of the things that really radicalizes individuals is these conspiracy theories, which Q, this QAnon thing was a conspiracy theory, and it has turned into really terrorism. Um, they are pulling on pieces of information that people can connect to. Like one of the biggest things that QAnon really started their base off of was the fact that pedophiles were running the government and, you know, politicians were corrupt and they had secret, you know, pedophile rings, things like that. And, you know, as pieces of information, you know, this kind of fact is known. Individuals have those kind of connections. And so they were using just enough truth to hook people in. It was a fear that people had. You know, it's a really great hook, that idea of individuals being pedophiles, because that rallies people. You know, you see even in jails that pedophiles are always targeted. Um, and this was a really great rallying point. It kind of started off getting attention from average users. And so once there's that hook of making people kind of start following it, you know, we saw with the Jeffrey Epstein situation, things like that, information started coming out that started to validate these claims. And sometimes, and this is not the only claim, there are other claims that little pieces would come out that would begin to validate it. And so in the beginning, this started their growth. People started paying attention, like maybe they're onto something here. And over time, they have grown. The conspiracy theory has grown with what their opinion, you know, the deep state, things like that, a shadow government running, you know, the United States. And as people have been hooked and little pieces of information have come through that have validated what they are saying and shown that maybe they actually know what they're talking about in this kind of perverted sense of their reality, they are able to start making more and more extreme claims. Um, so it's either they've hooked people in and then they can kind of go that step beyond and people are going to possibly trust them on this because maybe they can't see the fact now, but it might come to fruition in five or 10 years. But because they've proven themselves or quote unquote proven themselves up until now, that's all that people need. And so with some of these politicians, you know, some of them, of course, are going to be doing it for a certain base because, you know, maybe that's a certain dynamic that they want or they've realized that in their, you know, their area, those are the kind of things that people believe. So they're going to run with that. But also some of them can really, truly believe this because it can be very hard now, you know, with the, we talk about the misinformation that people can, it can be very challenging to figure out what is real and what is not. Even as intelligence analysts, sometimes we struggle with videos with these deep fake videos um, making things look a hundred percent real and for people who aren't trained to look for these things whether it be in videos in footage or in information as well understanding sources and where information actually comes from and how to spot false narratives to the average user it can be very believable and politicians are human like everyone else you know they're not intel analysts they are there for you know their elected officials we've seen recently some of these elected officials are lacking certain credentials for the positions they are in so they could actually truly believe what they are trying to promote and it's very dangerous because now QAnon that started like a very small theory is being supported by elected officials which gives them immense power because they can say that your elected official in congress here is one of us so it must be real because you voted for them they have power in the united states government therefore everything we say has to be the truth you know this may be the million dollar question camille how do we go about a process of, and, and I agree with you, I mean, this whole deep fake situation is very, very disturbing, which kind of, you know, leads kind of almost to two questions. One, it seems as if we have some very, very intelligent people. It's not necessarily, I mean, although the technology has gotten better and better and better, but to pull together these deep fake videos, that requires some kind of technical skill, right? That mm -hmm. requires some level of understanding about, you know, either video exploitation 
or whatever the case is in order to go forward. And so we've got some very smart people who are doing some very, very, uh, what I would probably say are some very, very dirty and you know horrendous type things, right? Um, how do we go through the process of de-radicalizing or getting people off this page? I mean, I know everybody's concerned about pedophilia as parents and everything else, but there's one thing to have a concern about, you know, pedophilia, sex trafficking, things of that sort. There's another thing to kind of be on the page of a dangerous conspiracy theory that's not really based off of facts. How do we kind of either re-educate or de-radicalize these individuals? That's a really challenging question, Derek. I mean, we've seen, you know, a great example was, you know, with the wafer situation, that people were making conspiracies that they were trafficking individuals and that their products were named after children. And I mean, this got people's attention. And for the company to get their reputation back and inform people that this is not what we're doing, it's a legitimate product. It's just, that's the name, you know, things like that. Some people believed it because they were given the evidence, things like that, um, that, disproved their initial beliefs. However, there are still countless individuals who just don't. This, and for some of these individuals to be you know, kind of blunt, they may never de-radicalize. This is so ingrained in some of them, whether it be due to their upbringing, whether it be to possibly a lack of education, which does sometimes come in. There's a myriad of problems that kind of lead into being radicalized or being susceptible to radical, you know, radical information. And ultimately, some of these individuals may never be able to be de-radicalized. Those who are already so far down this path, you know, with social media, we have the echo chamber creation in these private chats, in Facebook groups, and it feeds into it that people become so extreme that they actually really can't come back. It's kind of like an addiction in a way. Um, but really kind of stopping, you know, the new generation, the youths from going down this path as well, you know, informing people how to look for information and understanding what a legitimate source is. You know, we know certain sources are more reputable than others, but there's so many sources out there. How do you know what is real, what isn't? How do you know that if someone tweeted something, if they're not actually telling the truth? You know, possibly educating the mass public into how to do proper research. You know, some schools really hone in on research in college, things like that. But a lot of people also never really get taught this because you never think you're going to need those skills. But even on Facebook, you see regular people posting or regular pages posting information that is blatantly false because it's come from a false location. So starting this kind of conversation about how to identify, you know, there are certain methods you can take, how to identify possibly false information, maybe making programs, you know, we have AI is like the new thing. There are some programs out there that can actually identify deep fake in videos. So possibly making these things more readily accessible to people because ultimately actually countering disinformation or misinformation is very challenging in social media and in a country where we have free speech and people can really say what they want. So this is very, very challenging to address. And honestly, this is going to be a conversation that, you know, politicians, intelligence analysts, psychologists are really going to have to sit down and try and find something. There is not going to be one size fits all for this. But as of now, there's not been a really strong conversation on how to either stop the dissemination of this information or how to accurately combat it. And it's a very challenging question um, that honestly, as each new piece of information comes out, my personal answer always is changing. <laughs> It, it sounds like you said it's, it's going to be a conversation that we're going to be having into uh, the future. And this is really probably one of those situations where we have not really kind of uh, uh, dealt with a problem solving scenario and come up with a real good solution. But you have given some good ideas for us to kind of keep this conversation going. You, I want to touch on that one last thing with you, Camille, before we go. 
I'm really, really concerned about this insider threat situation. So when we come back on the next segment, I want to talk to you about the insider threat that we are seeing in terms of, and what we kind of saw with the Capitol, uh, a, a domestic attack, a terrorist attack, but also what we're probably seeing kind of going forward with maybe either current military, law enforcement, veterans, or government workers who are involved with some of these uh, domestic terrorist organizations kind of going forward. So I want to talk about that with you a little bit more. I'm talking to Camille Cosgrove. She's an intelligence analyst with the Counterterrorism Group. You can find them at counterterrorismgroup.com. You can find their site right there. You can also find them on LinkedIn, where I've been kind of digesting and reading some of their insightful reports about what's going on. We're talking about the domestic terrorism threat right now. Listen to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on the Federal News Network. We'll be right back after this work. Welcome back to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch from the Federal News Network. If you just joined us, we have been having an incredible conversation about the domestic terrorism threat situation. We've had an intel analyst from the counterterrorism group really provide some insight about what's going on with the current domestic terrorist situation, uh, not only just at the Capitol situation on January 6th, but also some things that are going forward that we need to be concerned about and really kind of working on some solutions for in terms of how to deal with this situation and really kind of you know bring it to an uh, uh, end uh, in terms of domestic terrorism. We also have a situation where there's been a number of different people talking about the insider threat. I've got Camille Cosgrove, who's an intel analyst with the counterterrorism group. You can find them on counterterrorismgroup.com but she's going to break down what we're hearing about the insider threat and what the counterterrorism group is also seeing about the insider threat in some of these law enforcement agencies, uh, uh, military branches, and everything else. Camille, talk to us about that. I mean, I've been really, really disturbed. Uh, just honestly, you know, somebody who's been on Capitol Hill and somebody who also has been in the military myself, I've been really, really disturbed about the number of people who we're finding who are either current uh, active or reserve or National Guard, whatever the case is, or current law enforcement who have been part of these movements. And some of them even came up to the Capitol terrorist attack and were participating and possibly causing harm to our elected officials. What are you guys seeing at the counterterrorism group about this kind of stuff right now? We're definitely seeing a lot of this. Um, there's been a great photo circulating um, of a couple of veterans who actually attended this event. And they are clearly, you know, you, it can be sometimes very hard to distinguish between who was a veteran and who was just wearing camo gear, you know, that kind of um, LARPing, uh, you know, any, that you can buy in any store and wear to make yourself feel like you're part of the military. Mm -hmm. There is a photo being circulated of a group of individuals in um, what is called Ranger File, which is, you know, the standard operating procedure for the combating team to kind of breach into a building. Um, and this is being circulated because this is clearly a trained group of individuals. They are clearly veterans. They know what they are doing. They wanted to go into that building. Um, we are seeing there was multiple veterans there from various branches. You know, and there isn't just one branch, you know, attributed to this incident. We were seeing current active duty military there as well, which is highly concerning, you know, under the DOD directive um, 1344.10, you know, the military, active duty military cannot do these kind of things. They can vote, they can, you know, donate, but that is in their personal lives. They cannot be there on military time, they cannot be there in uniform. And there were some individuals there who were actually part of organizing. You know, under this directive from specifically, you know, in the military, they cannot be engaged in organizing or partaking in these kind of events. You know, the wording is very clear. And there was a, a few um, military members, one of whom was in the army specifically, who actually was organizing bus rides and organizing people to go to this event, which means that, you know, we're having, you know, UCMJ coming in. There are a lot of military lawyers looking at what this, you know, situation is, what they can do, because 
we are seeing the concern of active duty who should not be doing this, even in their own personal time, as well as veterans who, you know, they have served this country. We are seeing a massive divide in the veteran community. Some veterans are infuriated in these actions. Some veterans are very angry with the state of the country, and that's why they wanted to participate. They felt like it was their duty to protect the government. You know, this comes back to the false information as well, you know, possibly being given a false narrative, not given all the facts. And so they were really radicalized, and they partook in this. I mean, we saw it with law enforcement as well. There was a lot of local law enforcement, not you know, in the DC community, but from out of state, attending this event, wanting to partake, some of whom have been suspended pending further investigation. And Camille, let me just interject real quick. You had law enforcement, for what I'm understanding, you had law enforcement officers from other you know, jurisdictions flashing their bags, right? You know, and, yes. and telling, and then trying to get in using, you know, that kind of law enforcement kind of so-called brotherhood, you know, this, that, and the other in order to try to, you know, penetrate the Capitol. And, and I guess, that's just a complete, to me, an abuse of, of the power and the, and the privilege you have been given as a law enforcement officer. It's also a dereliction of the duty that you have been told to, to protect and serve people as well, regardless of your jurisdiction. No, exactly. And I mean, we've seen also photos of you know individuals, who, police who are in the Capitol building actually allowing people in, taking selfies with the protesters, which is completely unacceptable. You know, their job is to protect the building, to protect the individuals in the building. And they are actually partaking in this event, which really questions the integrity of the security of the space. If the individuals who are charged to protect this building and the people within that building are sympathetic to those attempting to breach in, this is highly concerning for the safety and security, not just in this situation, but in future situations, as well as into the inauguration as well, if to actually the attendees are being properly protected by those who are charged with protecting them. You know, with this situation, do you think that agencies right now, whether it be a state, local, federal, military, whatever the case is, do they need to take this inside a threat situation serious? And do they need to really kind of go through a process of beginning to monitor I, and I hate to say monitoring ideas, but, you know, kind of monitoring, you know, people who are within their organizations for the possible dynamic that you may have some people who are providing either assistance, whether it be surveillance or, or maps and plans. You know, we're discovering right now with the capital situation that this was very, very organized. Many of the congressional leaders are saying they were trying, they were finding offices that are not on the maps are not known to anybody that most people even, even in the capital don't know about these people knew where those offices were which means that that was inside information being given out to somebody do agencies need to now really be, begin doing a little bit more of a robust inside a threat uh, uh, a program you know because we've always been doing it about espionage right we talk about kind of chinese or russian espionage situations but now do we need to kind of change the framework to now be concerned about domestic terrorist situations as an insider threat situation as well. Definitely. I mean, we've seen recently, you know, with individuals in Congress, they were these protesters the day before on January 5th, they were actually given a tour of the building. Tours have not been approved since March because of COVID-19 restrictions. So this tour was not technically official. It wasn't a legitimate tour. They had to be guided through the building and signed is in as someone's guest, someone in Congress. So this is concerning on the congressional side, that they were given a tour of a building and given that insider look into spaces that the average citizen is not usually given. And we're also having a massive concern about people with security clearance, which is a great you know point as well. I've been seeing some chatter and some conversations in some of these groups, people saying, I hold TSSCI clearance. You know, I have information. If you need something, 
let me know. And these groups are anonymous. You can't easily find out who they are. They are fully encrypted, things like that. So they are able to hide. So this means that there are government officials with TSSCI clearance, with access to information, willing to feed domestic individuals. They are not a foreign threat. They are willing to feed people information, which is concerning. And I mean, this is a question that needs to be brought up possibly during the security clearance process, you know, from the get-go, as well as constantly brought up throughout people's employment. Because if this is concerning, people have access to this information. You know, there's this trust that once you're in the door, maybe, you know, you're part of the team, you're part of the agency, you know, there's not going to be a threat there. But the domestic threat is real, anybody is susceptible to it, and people who have access to this information, as it became very evident in this situation, people were engaging and giving information, insider information. There is a clear insider threat at many levels of the government and intelligence agencies. And this is concerning, and I think there may need to be an overhaul or at least a really hard look at the practices currently in place, because clearly something has not worked in this situation. Camille, this is going to be a longer conversation that we got to have at some other point in time. I wish we had more time to talk about this, but we could be talking about this all day. I'm going to have to have you back on the show to kind of talk about this more because it's to me, I hate that this is the case, but it's like we're just kind of getting started with this kind of conversation about how to deal with this threat going forward. So I just want to thank you. Uh, Camille Cosgrove, she's an intelligence analyst. And she's been on the show kind of giving us a, a great uh, uh, understanding about the domestic terrorist threat. She comes from the counterterrorism group. You can find them at counterterrorismgroup.com. And she'll be back on another show at some point in time because we got a lot more to talk about about what's going on. And hopefully we can get some solutions on the table as well because we really got to get past this moment in time. Thank you, Camille. Thank you very much, Derek. It was a pleasure to be here. You've been listening to Fed Access with Derek T. Dorch on Federal News Network. Tune in Monday afternoons at 1 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. This just in. Reportedly, pigs can fly. We're going live to... Can't take another crazy headline? Well, here's something you can appreciate. The MyGM Rewards card gives you best-in-class rewards with four points for every dollar spent everywhere and seven total points earned per dollar spent with GM, bringing you one step closer to a new GM ride. That's the power of appreciation from us to you. Subject to credit approval, terms and limitations apply. Visit MyGMRewardsCard.com. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.